0: Uh, today I want to share with you a message entitled, The Liberation of Worship. Let's pray as we begin. Father God, thank you so much for this amazing congregation, for all these men and women that have gathered, and just for their hearts and for the community that you have built in and through all of us, for the rescue that you have done in the world in and through all of us, uh, for the reconciliation that has happened, for the love that exists here, for the new life and of uh, bringing new things out of death. It's just such a joy to journey with these people, and I pray that as we enter in once again into the study of your word, may you challenge us, enlighten us, inspire us, transform us, move our hearts and our souls so that we can continually be the best representation that we can of your presence, of your image, of your likeness here on earth as we build your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I pray in your name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. We've been charting through an amazing story, a story that is epic, a story that has amazing cultural significance and weight, starting in a country called Egypt. And we've journeyed through a lot of different ups and downs, ebbs and flows. It started with the story of some midwives who involved themselves in civil disobedience, not necessarily obeying fully the command of the king in order to save one child, in order to save many children. And that was going to be the precursor of the salvation that was to come of people that were stuck in slavery, stuck in bondage, where things were getting harder, more difficult. We journeyed through the story of discovering all of the beautiful intricacies of language, of crafting of the narrative, of how the story was put together to be Foreshadowing of things that were to come and to give you deep significance of the things that were happening. For example, Moses was placed in the reeds, and it was later on that the people were going to be freed through the reeds. And we talked about in that message how Pharaoh is like a reed himself, blown back and forth by the wind. No security, no consistency, but blown back and forth, inconsistent. And we talked about all those resonances. We talked a little bit about the significance of the story of the burning bush and how it was burned but was not consumed. And the deep resonances of that with the people about how they were burned but they were not consumed. And how this was to be a picture of what Moses is to see about his people. And about how even though they were in deep, harsh bondage, they themselves are setting the story from their life and through God's redemption and story in and through them that they were going to emerge out of that, unsinged because of the redemption that God was doing. talked a little bit about God's revelation through this bush and how he revealed himself through not just a theological declaration, but through a personal commitment and relationship as somebody who speaks face to face. And so now Moses is hearing who this God is by name. A God that the Israelites, by the way, cried out to, but didn't know who they were crying out to. And God reveals himself by this deep, beautiful, precious name that in some ways means, I will be who I will be. Come journey together and let us see who this God will be. And we're going to journey, yes, even through plagues, even through more challenges, and even when things look like They're going to get more difficult and more challenging. Redemption is coming. They are the birth pains of birthing something brand new out of your life. And we struggled a little bit about this hardness of heart, and we discussed how God wasn't necessarily hardening Pharaoh's heart, but it was the presence of God that made Pharaoh's heart even more strong and even more resolved in his determination. And so we talked about the play of that language there, and we wrestled with what that could mean and how that could live in all of us for us becoming more and more entrenched in our attitudes, more and more entrenched in our perspectives as events and activities and environments surround us. We talked about how even though the Israelites were out in the middle of the desert, God provided For them through the manna, through the quail, and even though they had no idea what it was, it was a picture and an image of God's provision on a daily, regular basis. And even though, even though God was faithful in all of these steps, and there was confusion, certainly, uncertainty, certainly, uh, not quite sure how this whole redemption process, this freedom from slavery was going to happen, God was there, God was providing, God was present, God was continually showing himself. Even though that happened, there was this moment of, but we don't see this Moses guy anymore. Where did he go? And so the Israelites fashioned this golden calf. Pastor Mark talked a little bit about how that calf becomes essentially an idol, where we focus in on who's in and who's out. And they really needed this thing, fashioned, by the way, out of their own jewelry, which is an amazingly deep picture and image about worshiping the things that we value And he talked a little bit about the shifts and the changes that happen there rather than finding out who's in or who's out. Where are you moving? Rather than creating golden calves or idols by which we make a measurement of who's in or who's out, we ask ourselves the question, who's moving and where are you moving to? So Moses comes down off of the mountain, sees all of this, smashes the the Ten Commandments, these tablets into pieces, makes them drink it, Um, And Danielle talked about grace upon grace because even though that was the image, that was the picture, that was the activity of the Israelites, God once again instituted the Ten Commandments, this time on two separate brand new tablets to institute yet again more grace. This has been an amazing story. It's hard to sum it all up in your brain sometimes because of how it chunks out in week by week. But when you read the sweep of the narrative— Ebbs and flows, ups and downs, God's provision, all the symbolism, all the foreshadowing, all of it coming. And now we get to the end in chapters 35 through 40. And in the end, it starts off with the Sabbath, and then it goes through what you might consider great bedtime reading material (laughs) because it's detail after detail of how you're supposed to put the ark together, how you're supposed to put the basin together? How are you supposed to put the altar together? How are you supposed to put the burnt offerings together? What kind of vestments the priests are going to have? And it doesn't really seem like powerful uh, verses that I'm going to put on my bumper sticker kind of passages. This actually, it looks more like blueprints, like, okay, these are things that we really need to read here. And so we ask ourselves the question, When we start this Exodus story, it starts with great drama, and it ends with a whole list of what we might consider blueprints, details, and very specific specifications. But woven into that end is a little bit of a summation and a little bit of the capstone of this entire story that I would like to highlight for you, at least what I think I see In this passage. And of course, as we always do at Spark, some of you might see things that I didn't see, and that's what's so beautiful about our community. Woven into this end, there are passages like this. And so, at last, the tabernacle was finished. The Israelites had done everything just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, think about that for a second. That phraseology, given what you know about the history of the Israelites all throughout this story, they did everything just as the Lord had commanded. It is as if some sort of culmination of obedience and disobedience, calf, golden calf, and, you know, where the heck is God and where the heck is Moses, all is culminating in this particular picture of the building of the tabernacle. And they brought the entire tabernacle to Moses, and then the dot, dot, dot there, the ellipses is there to list, then it lists this thing that they brought, and this thing that they brought, and this thing that they brought, and at the end of that list, so the people of Israel followed all of the Lord's instructions to Moses. Then Moses inspected all their work. When he found it had been done, just as the Lord had commanded him, he blessed them. After everything that you've been through. Concern about Pharaoh slaughtering your children in the Nile. Concern about Pharaoh's harshness of terms of slavery, even after the plagues. Concern that he 's going to slaughter you even after you escape because you 're stuck between a sea and the army, concerned that you 're going to die out in the desert, and then all of a sudden there 's no food, no water. You know what, Moses? It was better back there, and given all of this, given that entire history, we finally come to the end. The Israelites do everything that the Lord had commanded, they involve themselves in the work of the building of this tent out in the middle of the desert. They pour everything. We're going to see a verse later on where they not only give everything that's needed, they give over an abundance of what is needed. And Moses takes a look and says, you, this is it. We get it. We're here. We've come through this story, and we've now made it. And so when he sees this, he says, he blesses them. It's as if the end of this passage, the end of this grand narrative of Exodus is starting to bring to light the aha moment or the awakening of this entire story. Nahum Sarna mentions this, writes this, that I think is so poignant. The book of Exodus, which opened with a tale of misery and oppression, closes on an auspicious note. Israel is assured that day and night, the divine spirit hovers over it, guiding and controlling its destiny. And that image and that picture culminates in the building of the tabernacle and what I would call in the culmination of worship. So today what I'd like to share with you is how I think the word worship is a term that we can use to sum up this entire story and this entire narrative. There's a couple reasons for that. If you remember back to the story or if you recall Let my people go so that they may worship me. The entire story starts off with this question of worship. And then it ends with the building that they go to to worship. And so worship essentially bookends these two things. Throughout the rest of the scriptures, the term worship and how that term is used in our uh, modern usage, I think, has deep resonance and deep meaning to the story. Journey into the story uh, that the Israelites have been through. First, worship is actually an English word. The English word worship comes from the Old English worth ship, which has this idea, uh, has this definition of that which is valuable, that which is worthy, that which is very, very precious. And if this doesn't do it for you, I know there's somebody in this room who probably thinks that this is going to do it for you something that is of deep value. And if that doesn't do it for you, for you don't really care about that then maybe we'll go with this image. Something that is deeply valuable, something that has high values of worth. And I like this image of the chocolate cake because this word worship is something that we could teach on forever because it has deep and rich meaning, which is what I think of when I see this. (laughs) So the first thing to understand about the word worship is that there's value, that there's worth. It is the state or the condition of being worthy. The second thing about worship is is that the word worship, actually in Exodus, is this word evid. Say evid. Evid is the word that means servant. It is often translated slave, and it is often translated work, to work, to serve. So second definition of this word worship is not just the praise. uh, It's not just the celebration of the music piece, although that's a really important piece of our understanding of worship. From the Exodus story and from the linguistic background, this is about service. Let my people go so that they may serve me, so that they may work for me. Why? Because they were previously working for Pharaoh. So the problem wasn't the work, maybe. The problem was that they were working for a false god rather than serving the true God. So number one, worship means worth or value. Second, worship means to serve or to work And then in the Greek, in the New Testament, the word worship is translated proskuneo. And if you really fancy, say proskuneo. (laughs) Proskuneo is means to kiss toward. And the image here that's in the Greek is as a dog licking a master's hand. Now, for those of you who uh, follow Facebook, (laughs) you'll see pictures and images and stuff like this all the time. And for those of you who are involved in animal rescue, you know that this image is the image and the picture and the symbol of someone who recognizes that they've been rescued. Someone who recognizes that they were in a not-so-great place. And someone came along, rescued them, saved them. And the licking forward or the kissing toward the master's hand in this image is to say, thank you. To express gratitude. To say, I recognize the state and the place that I was in. And I am now recognizing that, that you are my master and master in that sense being the one who has saved me, the one who has rescued me, the one who has come down and pulled me out of that miry pit, out of a desolate place. And so worship from its etymology, from its definition has these three things, worth or value, to serve or to work, to respond to rescue. It is a response to rescue. So, there are three things, in addition to those definitions, that I'd like to weave through this particular passage uh, that I think are part of the Exodus story and a part of our story. And the first is simply this. When you think about that definition, you recognize that worship isn't an activity that you do that's a part of your life. Worship is life. Worship is is the very existence. Do you know people that do this? Do you know people that dress themselves and the act really crazy and all of a sudden cry out for some odd psychotic reason to yell at people who are dressed up in uniform, throwing a ball back and forth, like what really is this thing that we are doing? Or maybe if that image, do you know young teenage I work at a school, I hear this all the time, and it's like, oh my God, the next band. This is something that wells up within every single one of us. At one particular point, we start to see and recognize that there are things in this world that we greatly value. And when we get up in the morning, and when we paint our faces, and when we go out and take selfies, when we go out and take pictures and videos... This is an expression that we think that in that thing is something of worth. When you get up and you go to work, you recognize that in that thing there is something of worth. When you get up in the morning, when you decide to take a vacation, you recognize that there is something of value, something of worth in that thing. In other words, everything that you do, every decision that you make, every breath that you breathe, as an expression of worth and value... Is an expression of worship. You consider, hopefully, coming to a service like this, being a part of a church, to be of value, to be of worth. That is an expression of worship. And what we see in the Exodus story is exactly that. That within the human heart, both with Pharaoh and with the Israelites, there was something within them that cried out, This is worthy, this is valuable. This is important to me. This is something that has deep importance, deep worth. So Pharaoh, he was of ultimate worth for the Israelites. They needed this as value, this is worth. The entire existence of the Exodus story and the entire existence of all of us is for us to say, what is worthy? What is ultimately a value? Have you ever heard of the term, life is just not worth living anymore? That is an expression to say that life, for it to be life, means that it is intrinsically, automatically, by very, the na- very nature of what life is, imbued with some sort of worth, some sort of value. And for those, those, those of us who have found ourselves in dark times where life is not as worth living, for those of us who've experienced that, who have gone through those dark moments. It's not the loss of life, it's the loss of worth, it's the loss of value. Another way to say it on the flip side is true worship revives our meaning for existence. For us to embrace worship once again is for us to revive once again the value and the worth of our lives. And at the very end of the story, this is exactly what the Israelites do. They start to see that the things that they do, the work that they do, the skills that they bring, the life that they are leading has deep significance and ultimate worth. And that's what God was attempting to communicate with them all throughout this story. And so it's one of my opinions that that's why they bring forth their best. So number one, the question is not, for those of you listening to this, do you worship? The question is what? Or who do you worship? I don't know if you've ever considered that before, but you right now in this moment are a worshiper. In fact, you could be non-religious. You could be an atheist. You could be completely... Forget about any ideas of spirituality. You are a worshiper. Because by the very act of your life, you are declaring something in your life to be of worth and to be of value. The Exodus story... Is the ebb and flow and the shifts and the changes of these people trying to figure out what really is of ultimate worth and ultimate value? Number two, worship is a response to God's salvation. This is the proskuneo, the dog licking the master's hand. Some of you know, it's a little bit of an embarrassing time in our lives where we were a part of a band, a traveling band. We went around to all these high school camps. Um kids asked for my autograph. It was really cool. We had we had an album I'm, I won't play it for you. It's like this was like 15 years ago. Anyway, we were at this camp once playing we were the worship team. It was a lot of fun. And uh during the free time there's some kids were gathering around a swimming pool and as you do with a high school camp, there's about 400 kids there. You'll have to do a belly flop contest. Yes? This is this is not an option for a high school camp people. This is a mandatory event. So we were doing this belly flop contest. There were a whole bunch of kids in the swimming pool. The band and I, we were over on this side. Kids were over there. Two levels of diving board, for those of you who've seen that. You know, you got the three foot and then you got the six foot. And apparently there was some noise and some ruckus on one particular side. And uh, one of of these kids um, apparently jumped off and did this belly flop, and everybody thought it was pretty amazing. He had the red on his belly and everything like this. And then all of a sudden we heard this chant. And I don't remember the kid's name. For some reason, the name Jimmy is in my mind. No relation to Jimmy over here. But I have this name in my mind Jimmy, Jimmy. And the whole crowd started to chant Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. And apparently, he had jumped off of the three foot and now was on the six footer. And he was, um, shall we say, a uh, portly kid. And with full unashamedness, I peeked around the corner. And he was bouncing on the board like this, and the entire crowd around him was just chanting, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. I mean, everybody's hyped up. <coughs> so he starts bouncing on the board, and he jumps off of the board in one what I can only describe as perfect form. <laughs> Spread eagle, hands wide, legs out, everything exposed to the elements, and lands on the water. In the exact per- so you've heard this story. Uh, in the exact and he does this. Now, I don't need to tell you. Beth's already doing this. The entire the entire arena in one collective, as if it was coordinated, sigh goes. Ah! Now, what's fascinating about that is that nobody nobody had to tell these people how to respond. It was the most natural response to seeing this kid make a fool of himself for our joy and entertainment and to suffer the pain and the consequences of his amazing skills. There were some in that pool arena who did not see, who didn't have clear view, didn't hear it right away, but they heard the collective groan afterwards. What did they do after they heard everything? What was that? They didn't groan, they didn't have the visceral response, they just wanted to see. And that to me might be a nice image and a picture of exactly what this idea of worship is. These Israelites had just seen God do amazing things. They had just come through something. They had witnessed with their own eyes. And to then build a tabernacle, to then worship God, is not something that they had to do. To worship is to invoke the most natural response of seeing this God work, perform miracles, to be loving, to be gracious, to bring rescue. I've been a worship leader for years. Some of you know this. And one of the things that I've attempted to teach in my classes and with congregations, it is never, ever... My job as the worship leader to get you to worship. Hopefully, your worship, your declaration of God's value and God's worth and what he has done comes not from what the worship leader is doing, but comes from your full view of what God has done in your life. This isn't something that I have to contrive. This isn't something that we have to manipulate. Worship is the most natural response to seeing God at work in your life. When you see God working, when you see these miracles, when you see this, it is the most natural thing that comes and wells about. And if for those of you who may not understand this whole worship thing, may not understand why people get excited, may not understand why it's uh, such a big deal to praise God and to do participate in that discipline, it's not that you, there's something wrong with you. Maybe we just haven't fully seen what God has done. And so for the Israelites, for them at the very end of this story to come forth and to be fully engaged in the building of this tabernacle, to be fully engaged with celebrating who God is, to be fully engaged with all of these commands, maybe by that time they had come to fully see this God really was covering us, protecting us, guiding us. So number one, worship is life. It's what we all do. It's what the Israelites do. It's what Pharaoh did. Everybody's doing it. Number two, at the very end of the story, it's the most natural response to seeing God at work. And number three, and this is going to be the, probably the one of the most challenging ones, to truly worship, to see value and to see worth in who God is and in your life and how God has uh, instilled within your life this value and this worth is an extremely powerful act of spiritual warfare. Throughout the Exodus story, throughout the Exodus narrative, on honestly, throughout the entirety of the scriptural narrative, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and for the vast majority of religions and ideas and spiritualities out there, there is this deep fight between darkness and light, good and evil. This story about darkness and light and good and evil is a theme that I think encapsulates every single one of us, trying to figure out what is good and what is Evil And how are you going to respond in this world right now in your life to this fight, to this struggle, to this tension? And part of what worship means, and as difficult as this may sound, and as challenging as I personally know that this is, to worship is a, is a discipline and an act of spiritual warfare. To say that even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of all of these things that can happen, I will choose hope. I will choose life. I will choose to see that there is something of worth and value in this thing, in my life, in the people around me, in this situation, in this circumstance. I choose to grasp hold and to see that value. What's the alternative? To no longer see anything of worth or value, which means then that the darkness essentially is winning. The Israelites had come through this struggle. And by the way, just a reminder when they get to this particular point, they are not in the promised land, they have not yet made it, they are still in transition. They're still living in temporary tents. They're still not at the place where they have a sense and a feeling of God's call and destination of where they want to be. And yet, they come forward and they bring forth all of their contributions. This is, this is the thing that I love. So Moses gave the command and the message was sent throughout the com- camp. Men and women, don't prepare any more gifts for the sanctuary. We have enough. So the people stopped bringing their sacred offerings. Their contributions were more than enough to complete the whole project. This is one of my favorite verses in the end of this narrative. Something had shifted. Something had changed. And even though they knew about evil, they knew about Pharaoh, they knew about desolation, they knew about the possibility of starvation out in the desert, they knew all of these things and, and they are still in many ways living by it. At the very end of this narrative, for those of you who know the story, there's going to be a cloud Uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night, they are still wandering and journeying through the desert where all of these things that had previously ailed them could uh, once again be possibilities. And even though they weren't there, even though they didn't make it to the promised land, even though they aren't there yet, they contributed more than enough to the building of this project. Because worship, to to find value in this, is an act of, Of spiritual warfare, to say the darkness will not win. It will not win. Oh, it's gonna try. And there are gonna be moments in our lives where we feel like, yes, the darkness actually is winning. But that's why we reach deep, we discipline, we are encouraged by the body of Christ around us to say, no, even in the midst of darkness. I will cry out, God is worthy, majesty, majesty, all these songs that we just sang, even in the midst of that. I find it no mistake that all of what we just talked about in those three things, that it is life, that it's a response to God, and that it is spiritual warfare, starts with the idea that it is work in the very beginning. Let my people go so that they may work, serve me. Because what this definition of worship does is it explodes it beyond just the church walls. It explodes it just beyond that worship time of the service. It explodes it just beyond those moments when you are participating in singing or in special prayer time or in devotion time. Worship, as we mentioned before, is now your entire life. It is everything that you put your hands and feet to. It is everything that you put your mind to. It is everything that you involve yourself in that is serving, that is working in this world. Um, I see a little bit of a hint in that in these verses because Moses um, and the craftsmen are asking for skilled people, people who have expertise, people who excel in these kinds of things. So if it starts with work and worship and service, and it ends with the tabernacle and people bringing all of their work To this thing, to see the worth and the value of who God is in their lives, to respond to the goodness of who God is, and to say, even in the midst of darkness and even in the midst of the fact that we aren't there yet, we are going to build this thing together. I say that that explodes this definition of work into everything that we do. We have people in this room who are engineers, we have people in this room who are scientists, we have people who really engage in the skill and the talent of what it is that you. Have invested your life into. That is an act of worship. You are taking your skills. You are seeing worth and value live within this world through the work that you do. You are responding, hopefully, to a God that has done great things in this world, and you too want to leverage all of what you've done in this world to see those great things happen. And even though there's darkness, And even though there's challenge, and even though there's the blue screen of death, (laughs) you will continue your work because you're going to fight against that. We have people who love to do software and we love to do social media. It's the same kind of thing. You are investing your life and your work into something that is worthy. We have people in this room who are studying psychology and studying behavioral sciences and studying all of that stuff. That is... That work is worship. It is leveraging your gifts and your talents and your skills, serving something that is deeply valuable and worthy in this world. And then we have a ton of people who are in education, who believe so much that the gift that has been given to you, in response to the gift that has been given to you, needs to be deployed back into this world as a response. And there is darkness out there, We talk a lot about justice and compassion and all of that work being deeply tied to education and how that makes a huge difference in the world when it comes to economies, etc., etc. You are battling against the darkness. You are fighting against the evils. You are wrestling against those spiritual forces that want to keep that darkness going. All of us. Whatever your work is, whatever you are doing, whatever deployment of your gifts and skills, you are participating in a holy act of worship. What you are doing is deeply meaningful. And hopefully, hopefully if you're participating in work and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. If you can grab hold of these ideas, these concepts, these purposes, then that infuses your work with a whole new level of meaning whole new level of worth, whole new level of value. And then you're like, I will bring in over an abundance of it because I see how important this is. And the reason why this is important, as we mentioned, is because (coughs) every single one of us know this. Every single one of us in this room have wrestled with the idea of pride and arrogance and ego. There's a darkness And we want to deploy whatever services we have, respond to a God who has been loving and kind and gracious to us and deploy that in the world. All of us know what it's like maybe to be abandoned, uncertain, what the future is going to hold. We've come from those places. Many of us know what it's like to have challenge and bondage. The vast majority of us in this room know what it's like to have a really harsh boss, a challenging leader. And when we look at those things, when we see these realities, we leverage our gifts, our talents in this world to see worth and to see value in all of these places and to fight desperately against those dark spots in the world. And when we do, that is our act of worship. And this is what the Israelites do at the end. They bring it all. They bow down. They obey all the, the Lord's commands. They bring more than enough. And this entire series ends, essentially, in something that was constructed that reminds them of the beautiful presence of God in this world. And as you leverage your work and as you create something beautiful and wonderful in this world, whether it's, it's through science, technology, education, software, whatever it is, you are once again exemplifying that beautiful presence of God in this world. This is maybe how I would sum it up. To worship is to discover meaning, value, and worth in light of God's value for all of us and to respond to God's value and worth of us by serving God, working in this world, and especially in the face of evil, suffering, pain, dysfunction, to bring about real life, real hope, and a real future. If Exodus is a story of liberation and a story of freedom, this is what freedom is. To know that everything of who you are, your life, your work, your gifts, your talents, is responding to God's great love and is being leveraged in this world to infuse this world and your life with the highest level of meaning, purpose, and value. That's what freedom is, and that's what freedom is is for. And so we end our very lengthy series (laughs) in Exodus. Lord, I pray that any of these words, most of all your words and your spirit moving in and amongst us, would inspire us once again to leverage our gifts and talents for you and this world. And as the Israelites brought an over and abundance of their work to the building of the tabernacle as a representation of your presence here on earth, may we, all of us in this room, whatever gifts and talents we have, bring it forth in whatever industries we're working, with whatever education we have, with whatever populations we're working with, may we work with all joy and over an abundance to serve them, and to bring, a, to bring about the greatest worth and value that could ever exist because of you. And I pray this in your name. Everybody say it. Amen.